good evening. I'm really happy to be here. Um, after 36 hours flying, I'm happy to be anywhere on the ground. And I want to send uh, blessings and greetings from Dr. Reader and his wife, Cindy. They are um, encouraged and uh, uh, care for you. Uh, and I also want to thank Micah. Um, I feel like we just know each other recently, but as we talked a little bit and we've chatted online, um, I feel like we're it's brothers in the Lord for sure, and uh, I feel a lot of uh, commonality, so I'm grateful for that. As for myself, I am from Amarillo, Texas. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that I'm from Texas, so when people ask me what countries I've visited, I'll say America, Malaysia now, Hungary, and Texas. Uh, will be a, a key feature on that trip in my life. I was born there. Um, I have a wife named Esti. She's from Hungary. I met her on a mission trip. And we have three children, Charlie, who is four, and he loves dinosaurs. Uh, Rosie, who is about to be three in January, and she loves dinosaurs as long as she's playing with Charlie, and then she likes ballet. And then Sophie is 14, and she, or 14 months, excuse me. <laughs> She's not, she's not that old. Uh, 14 months, and she likes to fall off the couch when no one is watching. So she's trouble. Um, but yes, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so encouraged. Uh, it was so beautiful to worship together. It was uh, wonderful. So um, if you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we will continue worshiping together with the reading of God's word. Second Corinthians, excuse me, 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for your mercies today are truly new every morning. Father, we thank you that you took account of us, that you sent your son, that he died on a cross for our sakes, that he rose to life, that he was vindicated and justified, and he sits in authority. We thank you that he came into this world to save sinners of whom we all are. Father, help us to be a people that repent Help us to be a people that look to you. Help us to be a people that turn our eyes to you and depend on you. And help us to be a people that walk obedient to your ways, empowered by your spirit, because we love your son and what he's done for us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen. Who here enjoys grief? Does anybody love grief? And when I say sorrow or pain or trauma or suffering, does anybody say, I want to get first in line for the grief aisle? Nobody. But Paul says there's a thing called godly grief. Well, what could possibly be godly about grief? And when you look, there's, there's a word in there that's very important that we're going to discuss that grief is crucial to understand, and it's the word repentance. Grief is good and godly because of repentance. And so 
We're going to try and understand godly grief so we can understand repentance. And we're going to do that with three categories. First, we're going to talk about worldly grief, which produces death. Then we'll talk about godly grief, which produces repentance. And then we'll ask that all-important question, what now? And we'll talk about a life of repentance. So we'll talk about death and repentance and life. Look again at the second half of 2 Corinthians 7.10. We're going to work backwards to front, and you'll see it says, whereas worldly grief produces death. That word, whereas, is very important because Paul says that godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly, whereas worldly, he's comparing the two. And the second one, it doesn't have repentance. And so it doesn't have salvation. And so what does it produce? It produces death. Well, why is that? I think there's two key reasons. The first is that worldly grief, it doesn't see me as a perpetrator of the crime of sin. I'm not a committer. I am a victim of sin. I am the chief victim of sin if my grief is of the world. It's not that someone committed a sin against God. It's that everyone commits sins and they all commit them against me. It's not, as Stephen said, Lord, forgive them. It's, Lord, I'm going to be the one who decides to forgive because it's me. It's me. It's me. I am not the person who is the problem. The problem is not within me. The problem is that I am the victim. The first problem with worldly sin is it says I am not the problem. And the second one is interesting because it, it, it relates from that. The second reason worldly sin or worldly grief produces death is because since I am not the problem, I'm going to find a different kind of Savior. I'm not going to seek a Savior that is above. I'm going to seek a Savior that is just like me or around me. Think for a moment. If I believe that the problem in my life is money, and the reason it's a problem is because it only hurts me, what's my Savior going to be? It's going to be more money. If sickness is the only problem that I see, and the only problem it hurts is me, 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 what's my solution? Medicine. But I got bad news. Money, it runs out. They can't buy everything. And medicine, it can sustain you. But I can't stop death. Try as we might. We haven't found a cure for that one yet. So what we produce with worldly grief is, I am the God that is being sinned against, and my solution is going to come from my world. But that's idolatry on two accounts. 
It's saying that I am God. I am the recipient of sin. And it's saying, and I'm going to craft a savior in my own image. But there's a problem. Money needs to be redeemed. Medicine needs to be redeemed. Your family, your friends, everything in this world needs to be redeemed. You can't be saved by something that's just as broken as you and me. So we have to find a savior from above because the savior from below can do nothing. And we won't even admit that we're part of the problem if our grief is of the world. And why is that? Because even when we have great shame for the awful things that we do, is that shame because God is hurt? Or is it shame because I look like a fool? Worldly grief is me, me, me. And I can't save me. But praise the Lord, there's a different kind of grief that Paul talks about. Look back at the first half. Paul says, godly grief. And what's the difference? It leads to repentance. And so we're going to define repentance. We're going to do it in two halves. I'll give you part one now. And then part two will come later. And part two is important. So if you fall asleep in between part one and part two, I'm so sorry. You're going to miss the better part. But part one is important. Repentance is turning away from sin. So part one of repentance is turning away from sin. And that's why grief is so important. Godly grief, it it pricks our heart. It stabs us and it it alerts us to the condition that we're in. Godly grief, it crashes us against the rock so that we know that we need something other than ourselves. Godly grief makes us look face to face at our sins and recognize what they are. Now notice I didn't say It makes us look face-to-face with our problems. We have problems. It's not face-to-face with our struggles. We have struggles. We look face-to-face with our sin, with the thing that we have committed, the thing that is against God Almighty. So how do we look at sin properly? Well, first, we don't minimize it. We don't say, This is a little sin. It's not that big of a deal. We don't say, well, everybody lies. We don't say, I could stop doing that, but it's kind of fun. The first step in godly grief is to look at a sin and see that it is committed against the highest, most perfect God of the universe. I remember hearing a, a story, I think Jonathan Edwards was telling it, so I didn't hear it, I read it. And he said that if if a bug was crawling across the ground and you stomped at it, who would be upset? Probably nobody. Um, A younger me and my son might be upset, but most people would not care. Well, what if it was a puppy? Then who's upset? Probably a couple hands. I know three over there that are nodding vigorously. Don't step on that puppy. What if... It was a child. 
who walked up here and I stomped on them. I wouldn't be invited back, that's for sure. Something that grows in value, what you do to it is worth. Well, God is infinite in value. He is infinite in his purity. So small sins against an infinite God have an infinite weight. You can't call sin something other than what it is. And we would never do this in the world. If you were out in your backyard or your front yard or any yard and you saw a poisonous snake, you wouldn't lean down and say, what a cute puppy. Or if you found a spider in your shoe, you wouldn't call it a butterfly. So we don't look at sin and say, ah, that's not so bad. So step one, and grief does this because it hurts. When we're grieved over sin, it's because we looked at it and we saw it for what it is. Well, what is it? It's against God. We read Psalm 51 earlier. Two verses later, David says, against you and you alone I have sinned. Which is a pretty interesting thing to say after you killed a man and stole his wife. David isn't saying, I didn't sin against Bathsheba. He's not saying I didn't sin against Uriah. He is saying my sin has its ultimate and chief end at you, God. And because I've sinned against the king of the cosmos, the wages of sin are death. Sin is against God, and it results in death. And so we have to say that sin is wicked. We have to mourn over it. Thomas Watson says there should be warm tears coming from our eyes. Um, and Thomas Vincent says, if you don't cry much, don't worry about it. Uh, but you should at least be crying internally. So we should be upset and mourning the sins because we see that they're wicked against the pure God. So what do we do? We then confess those sins. We don't bottle them up and keep them within us. We don't say, it's mine, it's internal, I'm going to just hang on to it. We have to turn away from it and let it go. And the first thing we do is we say out loud to our Redeemer, I have sinned. And then we hate it. You have to hate sin. It's the one thing you're supposed to hate. It's deadly. It's awful. You should hate it. And once you realize that you hate it and you sorrow, not because of discomfort, there is discomfort, but because it attacks your God, you turn from it and you leave it there and you do not come back. This is godly grief. And it means that we have to be broken by our sins. We have to be broken to the point of tears. Well, does that, does that sound any better? I mean, Paul says godly grief is good, but, but who wants to be broken to the point of tears? Who thinks, well, after church, I guess I'm going to go home and uncover all of my sins. Well, Paul says something else here that's really interesting. He says, you won't regret it. You're not going to regret turning from your sins. 
And I'll give you two reasons why you're not going to regret it. By the way, you're going to tell yourself you're going to regret it. You're going to look in the mirror and you're going to say, maybe I shouldn't do this. You're going to say, I don't really want to do that. Maybe whatever that guy from Texas was saying was, was uh, biblical, I don't know. But I definitely don't want to look into my own life. But there are two very good reasons why you should. Reason number one. Our Lord and Savior in his own words, Luke 13, 3, says this. Excuse me. He says, unless you repent, you will perish. Unless you turn away from your sin, you'll perish. The fall, Adam's fall, which we are part of, it brought us into an estate of sin and misery. And since we fell from God, we've lost that communion with God. So we're under wrath and we're under a curse and we're going to feel the effects of sin and misery, the miseries of life, the pains of death. And for those who don't call upon the Lord, hell forever. So the first reason is that sin ruins us and dishonors God. We have to turn away from it. We just said it was deadly. We compared it to a venomous snake and a venomous spider. We must turn from it because whatever discomfort it might cause us to look at it, the discomfort of leaving it alone is much, much worse. We've got a friend named Lee Baggett. He is a missionary, and he was serving in South America in the jungles. He would go from small village to small village, um, oftentimes walking just the goat path to the village. And he ran into this woman who had an abscessed tooth. Her tooth was infected, and it was a deep, awful infection. And when he met her, he said, the tooth has got to go. But there's one problem. Lee didn't have any medical gear with him that day. He had some antiseptic. He had a pair of pliers. And he had her permission. And if you could have heard him tell the story, there was not a single seat that didn't have a squirming body in it because he took the pliers and in a long process, he pulled this woman's tooth with no painkiller. And you know what she did afterwards? I mean, I would have probably done nothing but cry. I'm not going to say that I'm tough. But she smiled at him. She said, thank you. Because she knew that it was worth it. You don't go back to an abscessed tooth. She didn't wake up the next morning and say, I kind of wish I had it back. The story that we've heard this morning of someone losing cancer She's not going to wake up and say, I kind of wish I had the cancer back. It's the same with sin. When we look at it and we turn from it, we're not going to say, I wish I had that back. We're going to turn and walk from it because we know that an abscessed tooth will kill you and that sin uncovered and undealt with by your Savior, it will kill you too. So it might cause pain, but there will be no regret. But there's a second reason there will be no regret. 
And at the second reason, we'll finish our definition of repentance. So he said part one was to turn away from sin. But if I turn from this wall, I got to turn to some other wall, right? I can't just turn all the way around and come back to where I started. I've got to turn and look at something else. Well, I'm not going to turn from sin and look at me. I'm going to turn from sin and I'm going to look at Jesus Christ. And that is an incredibly important thing to do. Repentance leads to salvation. Repentance is not salvation. Your tears, as J.C. Ryle writes, your tears do not wash away your sin. The blood of Christ washes away your sin. And so grief, it shows our dependence on God. Our grief causes us to turn from the abscessed tooth to the ultimate dentist. It causes us to turn from the sin that is infecting us and to look at Jesus Christ. Because what did we say earlier? Your money won't save you. Your doctor won't save you. Your mom won't save you. Your dad won't save you. Your best friend, your family, your pastor can't save you. I can't save you. Your government can't save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. And he is righteous to forgive. And he promises that he will do so. We turn not from our sin to anything other than the face of the one we committed our sins against. Isn't that mind-boggling? Why is sin so damning? It's because we sinned against God. So what's the solution? You can't make it up, can you? What's the solution for sinning against God? It's turning and looking at God and calling out for forgiveness. So we don't defeat sin. We have victory. We're victorious in Jesus, but I don't defeat sin. I mentioned I've got a son, Charlie. Um, Charlie is strong. Um, Not as strong as he thinks he is, but he is strong. And when we lived in Philadelphia, our, our house was up some stairs. And I remember we were taking the groceries home and Charlie looked at me and he said, Dad, I'm going to help take the groceries upstairs today. And I said, okay, great, son, that's wonderful. I said, here's, here's a small bag. And he goes, no, I'm taking the potatoes. Well, his sack of potatoes is bigger than he is. So I hand it to him and he immediately drops down. He can't lift it. And he tugs and he resets and he tugs again. And every muscle in his three-year-old body is just tugging on this sack of potatoes. And suddenly he stops and he turns and he looks at me and he goes, Dad, you better grab this one. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying sin is a sack of potatoes. Um, Potatoes are good. Sin is wicked. Sin is awful. Sin is bad. But we should do with sin what Charlie did with potatoes. If you're keeping notes, you might have to remind yourself of what that means later because not many sermons that say do what Charlie did with a sack of potatoes. But what do we do? Do we look at our sin and we tug on it and we say, I can lift this, I can wash myself clean, I can totally manage this? Or do we stop 
and we look and we say, Jesus, my sins are wicked because I've committed them against you. And I can't carry this. I can't bear this. I can't stand with this. I can't walk with this. I can't live with this. You've got to take this one. And what does our older brother say? He says, I already carried them to the cross. I wore them so that you wouldn't have to. You need only call upon my name. You do not overcome your sin. You bind yourself to the one that does. And if we haven't said his name enough and you cannot say his name enough, it's Jesus Christ. So our two reasons that you'll never regret uncovering your sin and repenting of it is because you're turning from death to life. You're turning from the poison to the cure. You're turning to Jesus. And you will never, ever regret looking at Jesus. He's our hope. He's our redeemer. He's our goodness. And he's the one that makes our godly grief a joy. You can actually rejoice in uncovering sin. Uh, as bizarre as it sounds, it happens. My wife and I were struggling over a place to live. We were struggling over so many different aspects of our life. And finally, we said, we've got to go pray. And we had a time that was set up where we could leave our children with a friend. And we went down and we started praying. We were asking God for help. And suddenly it occurred to us that maybe we needed something more than a new place to live. We needed to address the fact that it wasn't our current living situation that was making us fight each other. It wasn't our current living situation that showed me I had a problem with anger and impatience, that I was a wrathful person. It wasn't the living situation. It was the fact that it was in me. If I'm holding a cup of water and it spills because you bump into me and you say, why did water spill out? You might say it's because you bumped me, but that's not the right answer. You might say it's because the cup didn't have the lid, but that's not the right answer. The reason water spills out of the cup is because there was water in the cup. It showed me that I had wrath. And so what did we do? We finally sucked it up and we said, we've got to look at this and repent. And it was hot tears. But you know what happened afterwards? The sweetest relief I think I've ever felt. It feels good to repent. You will not regret repenting, no matter how much you tell yourself you will. So before we ask the next question, I just want to remind us that not repenting leads to death. But good grief, godly grief, leads to repentance, which leads to salvation. And for that, there is no regret. So what do we do now? What's the next step? Well, repentance doesn't only lead us to eternal life. It leads us to a life that sees God's mercies every day. It leads us to a life 
where we walk in obedience with our king. So repentance leads us to a life of dependence on God. As the confession said earlier, we have a new obedience. It's a new obedience because of the gospel. So we walk in the paths that God has laid out before us, empowered by him. It's dependence and obedience. And so the question is, what does that look like? In general, it means we confess and we turn and we sin no more. What does Jesus say? Go and sin a couple more times. Go and sin no more. Absolutely. But are we going to be perfect? No. I think there's a a good illustration um, about a river. If you're walking next to a river, and we'll we'll continue using children. If you're a child and you're walking next to the river, and your your mother has said, don't swim in the river, um, you might fall in the river every once in a while, and that's bad. You shouldn't have gotten that close to the river. You should have been paying careful attention. You should have been vigilant. You, should, you shouldn't have got as close as possible, but you fell in. You made a mistake. But that is completely different than swimming in it for half an hour, isn't it? We will stumble. You will stumble, but you do not lie in your sin. So in general, repentance looks like not lying in our sin. If I've got a struggle and I turn from it, I don't want to just remain in it. But Christ has mercy. He didn't die for the one sin I committed when I was in fifth grade. He died for every sin I will commit because he knows that I cannot do it perfectly this side of glory. So in general, we turn from our sins. But what about specifically? Well, children. What do children do? Well, you practice. If you're a kid, look at your mom and dad and repent. Tell them, mom, you know, I'm not saying go and do something naughty so you can practice. Um, that's not good. I did that when I was a child and my mom said, thank you for telling me the truth. But you didn't have to do that just to practice repenting. But children, practice telling your mom and dad when you sin. And then... Practice telling God. Practice makes perfect, and I will be the first to admit, the older you get, the harder it is to repent. So get the habit now. Parents, what do you do? Well, first, you teach your kids what God does when they repent. Practice forgiveness. Be a good forgiver when your children turn to you and confess their sins. But also... Be a good confessor to a spouse. And when you hurt your kids, be a good confessor to them. Don't let your kids see you not repenting. The hardest thing that happened in the last few years of my marriage was seeing my son familiar with my sin and me realizing I hadn't repented of it and apologized to him. I didn't sin against him, but he needs to know that daddy was wrong and daddy needs to go to God. Well, what about a new Christian? If you're a new Christian, what do you do? You repent daily. 
You need to have mercy brought to yourself by looking at Jesus. You repent daily. You make it a spiritual habit. And the sins that you have that you don't repent, you may know with confidence that Jesus saved you, but sins, they choke out your assurance. They choke out your joy. They choke out your prayer life. It is so hard to pray when you haven't repented because all you can think about is all the stuff you're hiding from God. If you're a new Christian, don't neglect the fact that part of your responsibility is to continually and praise the Lord that you have a church that leads you in confession. Confess with regularity. And then don't make friends with sin. Take your sins to the cross and leave them there. Because it's easy to have a best buddy that is a sin and to just leave it alone. Well, what about older Christians, those who are more familiar with the walk? What do you do? Well, don't grow tired of repenting. If, if anything, you've got a harder job because if you've been repenting for a long time, the sins that you need to uncover are probably bigger, badder, and harder to deal with. The more you grow in your walk, the more you start to uncover the deep sins within. Initially, I think a repentance, we're just kind of repenting from surface sins. We're repenting from, oh, I've got impatience. Oh, I've got a little bit of an anger problem. But as I look and I look and I look, eventually I see, oh, Joel, you're full of pride. That one's harder to look at. So old Christians, don't grow weary of repenting. That grief is good grief. Victory is ours. But that battle, it rages on. And in Texas, we have a saying, old dogs bite. So don't be an old Christian that is biting the hand that feeds you. Repent. But what about a doubting Christian? Maybe you're struggling with your walk. What do you do? Well, there's no regret. There's no hiding. And if you don't know what to do next, I'll tell you the best place to start. It's on your knees before your Lord, confessing your doubt. Ask him to touch you. He will. And maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you don't call him Lord. Maybe you don't belong to him. I want to tell you that there can be peace in your life. There can be joy in your life. There can be confidence in your life. There can be strength in your life. There can be assurance that you know what will happen. You can have an actual Savior in your life. And you will not regret repenting. God is gracious. And you know what? You're never too little to repent, and you're never too old to repent. And no sin is too small to repent of, and no sin is too great to repent of. Think of some of the best, best stories in the Bible. David, we mentioned him earlier. He stole Bathsheba. He killed her husband. And he wrote Psalm 51. He repented. Or how about Paul? He killed Stephen. They lined up and they put their coats at his feet and he watched the blood is on his hands as they murdered Stephen. He repented. Peter Paul opposes into his face. But before that, what does he do? He condemns Jesus. He says, I don't know who you are, Lord. For Judas, it was death. 
for Peter, it was repentance. And maybe a bit of speculation, but I think we're going to see King Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. I think when he stopped eating grass in that person's backyard and he writes in the book of Daniel that God is the king of the cosmos, I think Nebuchadnezzar repented. And if those guys can repent, you can repent. And it's not too late because who was on the left and right of Jesus at his crucifixion? Two thieves. One repented. If it wasn't too late for him to hear today you will be in paradise, it is not too late for you. But don't wait. There were two thieves, one for hope and one so that you wouldn't presume you're going to get something without calling upon the name of Jesus. So to tie it all back together, there's no sin that cannot be washed by the blood of Jesus. There's no time to wait. Repent today. Look at your Savior. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. He's mighty to forgive. He's perfect in peace. He loves those who call out to him. And he will forgive. So repent. His kingdom is at hand. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. The best thing that has been said in the last minutes was the reading of that word. It's perfect and it teaches us and it's mighty and it's powerful and it cuts us. It's a sword that is sharp enough to cut bone and marrow, a sword that cuts spirit. Father, we ask that you would lead us to repentance, that you would uncover those sins that we've been hiding and that we've been afraid to look at. We ask that you'd give us boldness because we know that it takes a pricking from your power. It takes your power to guide us and to lead us. And so we ask you to lead us to repentance. And we thank you for promising to forgive us. And we praise you that when our sins are against you, looking at you is the answer. Help us to call upon your name, to lean on your son. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.